Let's turn to, turn to Luke chapter 22 this morning. We only have a few of the meal stories left. And a lot happens during this meal, kind of a special meal. So I've kind of chosen one section out of it uh, to look at today. And it follows along the line of what John the Baptist said. said, I must decrease, he must increase. The question of who is the greatest. If you remember, Muhammad Ali always said he was the greatest. And the story, whether it's true or not, it fits. He got on a plane and was making a fuss. And the stewardess came by and said, Mr. Ali, you have to buckle your seatbelt. And he said, don't you know I'm the greatest? And and I'm just like Superman. And Superman didn't need no seatbelt. And the stewardess said, Superman didn't need no plane. (laughs) So uh, who is the greatest? Okay, who is the greatest? If you're able, would you stand with me? And I'll read from the Gospel of Luke. Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you would fix in our minds our position before you and what you call us to do, that we might understand that we can accomplish very little unless it is that we give up control and relinquish all that we are to you, and you working through us can achieve things that we can't even dream or imagine of. Open our eyes to your word today. This would be fixed in our hearts. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now I'm going to read from verse 7 through 34. And really that last portion is what we're going to be looking at today. But we're going to get a context as we start in chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large, furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And they departed and found everything just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table." For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss amongst themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. 
And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves." And you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers." And he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the cock will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Our section, we read that so you have a context of what we're dealing with. This is the Passover which he turns into the Lord's Supper here, and he challenges our concept of what it means to be great. So really our section is verses 24 through 30, and this whole issue of who is first and who is last, and what's important and what's not important, and who is the greatest and who is not the greatest. So Jesus addresses this particular issue of the, 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 the dispute among the disciples, And he applies it to the kingdom. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Because that's what Jesus is about. So first, let's start with the concept of humility. Now, humility is one of the hardest lessons to learn. Because unless you are extremely self-aware about what you are saying, how you are coming across, um, uh, most of us are just simply too hard-headed to learn these lessons unless we experience them. And to experience... Uh, lessons of humility means we might, um, well, we might be embarrassed, uh, we might fail, there might be penalty involved, there might be loss of position, loss of reputation. Uh, all these are hard lessons to learn, things that I would rather see you do and me learn from you, okay, rather than me have to experience in them. Now, there are those who think there's no reason to be humble. Well, I'm a success. And it's obvious that I am a success, so I just put it out there so everybody can see it and let the chips fall where they may, right? There are some people like that. But when we read in Scripture, we find that humility is an indispensable part of leadership as laid out for us in Scripture. Now, when you go back and do a little research or study the, the studies or the polls or anything like that, when we ask the question, who... Uh, list the top five presidents in our nation's history. Almost universally, the top two are Lincoln and Washington, and sometimes those are, are reversed. Now, one of the reasons uh, Abraham Lincoln in particular was such a good leader, I think, is because he learned humility. And he just didn't learn humility. He had it thrust upon him and beat down by the lessons of humility. Let me give you a few examples of how Abraham Lincoln learned humility. In 1831, he started his first business, which failed immediately. In 1832, he ran for state legislature, and he lost. 
1832, he also lost his job, and he wanted to go to law school, but he was denied entrance. In 1833, he borrowed some money from a friend to begin a new business, and by the end of the year, he was bankrupt and spent the next 17 years of his life paying off this debt. In 1834, he ran for state legislature. He won this time. In 1835, he was engaged to be married, but his sweetheart died, and his heart was broken. 1836, he had a total nervous breakdown, was in bed for six months. In 1838, he sought to become Speaker of the State Legislature, and he was defeated. In 1840, he sought to become an elector, and he was defeated. In 1843, he ran for Congress, and he was defeated. In 1846, he ran for Congress again, and this time he won and actually did a good job in his first term. In 1848, he ran for re-election to Congress, and he lost. In 1849, he sought a job uh, at the land office in his home state and was rejected. In 1854, he ran for Senate of the United States and lost. In 1856, he sought the vice presidential nomination at his party's national convention, and he was soundly defeated. In 1858, he ran for the U.S. Senate again, and he lost. And in 1860, he was elected president of the United States. Now, you can say that, man, he sure had a hard head, and he just beat it against that election wall until he finally broke it. Or he was learning. Each, each of those defeats was, was a chance to learn humility. And, uh, you know, when you read about him, he certainly does not come across as any, any pride there within him. And he served his country and gave all that he was that the Union might be preserved. And, and we all know that history. Now, we're not certain, when we go back to, to our scripture here, we're not certain when in the evening this discussion between Jesus and the apostles took place. You see in verse 23... And they began to discuss amongst themselves which one of them might be the one who was going to be betrayed. Now, what all? when I say that, we don't know exactly when, because there's an issue here that, that is not laid out for us here. It's more fully uh, developed for us in John. If you go to John chapters 13 through 17, uh, this is really laid out for us in much more detail. Luke gives us a snapshot uh, a very critical snapshot of what these events are, but a very brief snapshot as well. Now, they're arguing here, once we get into verse 24, about who's going to be the greatest. Who among them will be regarded as the greatest? Now, you can also remember that Jesus has kind of addressed this before because they've had this discussion, and he, in one of our, our previous meal uh, messages, we saw that Jesus said, don't rush in and get to the head of the table as if you were, that was the most prominent place, and because there was nobody sitting there, you just assumed it was for you. Better the host come and take you and move you to a prominent place rather than you're sitting at a prominent place and the host comes up behind you and goes, <clears throat> excuse me, sir, that's not your seat, and moves you down the line to some far less prominent place. Okay, uh, But if the, if the conversation is after Jesus' washing the feet, now that's not listed in here, but if it's after that, They've got a real problem. They've just had the Lord's Supper. Jesus has washed their feet. He's told them about humility. And here they are arguing, now, I'm the greatest. No, no, you're nothing. I'm the best. I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Ooh. 
Well, let's paint a picture here so that we get some idea. I'm kind of filling the, the blanks here. Jesus is, is in the upper room with his disciples. They've obviously just celebrated the Passover, which he's turned into the Lord's Supper, and he's instituting the Lord's Supper here. And he's saying, from now on, the bread and the cup will point to the cross, where I'm going to give my life. I'm going to shed my, my blood there on the cross. And all during the meal, as, as was one of the purposes of gathering for a meal, there's, they're talking back and forth, and there's discussion going on, and they're having just a, a big time. And, and, and Jesus says, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. And they all start, go, well, sure, it's not me. I mean, I wouldn't do that to Jesus. No, not me. Surely not me. must be you. can't be me, right? Must be one of you out there. It can't be me because I would never betray Jesus. And, and Peter stands up and says, I'm going to go to prison. I'm going to die before I do that. And Jesus lays out the facts of Peter's future for him. Now, this wasn't, as I said, it wasn't the first time that the apostles had gotten into a discussion, gotten into this, we'll call it a silly debate about how holy they were or about how good they were or about what position they're going to hold, who is going to be the greatest. They'd argued about this same matter. Remember, they're walking along in Mark chapter 9. They're walking along the, the path the, the, down the road, and Jesus is walking behind them, and they don't think he can hear them, as if Jesus doesn't know what's going on. And they're having this discussion about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Okay? And, and Jesus takes that opportunity to, to make them understand what childlike humility is all about. Okay, what childlike humility. You have to become like a child and humble yourself. And then on another occasion, the mother of James and John comes into the picture and says, well, I want my boys to sit on your right hand and your left hand. And Jesus says, you, I'm paraphrasing, you've got to be kidding me. You have no idea what it costs to sit on my right hand or my left hand in the kingdom. Well, you know, the other disciples were kind of indignant that maybe they didn't ask that question first. They didn't want to know about where they were going to sit. But they didn't understand when he talks about leadership in the kingdom, he's talking about servanthood. Because to lead, you have to serve. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. So in spite of these lessons, repeated lessons, here they are, on the eve of the Lord's death, and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest once again. And it shows us, it's a great lesson for us, because you can, you can know what it says, but it doesn't always come out in how you live. Sometimes it takes repeated illustrations of how stupid we can be before we go, well, you know, I read that before. Is that what it means? And, and this is what they're doing. They had the lesson in their head, but they just couldn't get it into their life. They just could not get it into their life about how they were to live. It's this sin. It's ambition. It's self-esteem. It's self-conceit. It lies at the bottom of so much of our life and so much of our problems. J.C. Ryle wrote this way. Thousands imagine that they are humble who cannot bear to see an equal who is more honored and favored than themselves. Few indeed can be found who rejoice heartily in a neighbor's promotion over their own heads. The quantity of envy and jealousy in the world is glaring proof of the prevalence of pride. 
Men would not envy a brother's advancement if they had not a secret thought that their own merit was greater than his. How did he get that promotion? I deserve that. Why did he win the lottery? I deserve to win the lottery. Okay, he's just going to... He's just going to mess up his life with that $100 million. Okay, I would be much more careful with that $100 million. Back to the apostles. How easily distracted they are. How easily they lose sight of the Christ who is right before them. They've lost sight of Christ because they're focused on themselves. They've already forgotten the idea that Jesus is about to betray. He has said that. He says, somebody's here at this table who's going to betray me. Instead of being concerned about his plight, they're concerned about their own greatness, which can only be achieved when they take their eyes off themselves, but they haven't figured that out yet. Now, this is perhaps... Now, you know, put yourself in this. It's a small room. Jesus has just done all of this. He's just demonstrated humility. He's just demonstrated what a servant is like. And here you are arguing about greatness. Is this the group of people who are going to change the world? Is this the crowd that you want to entrust the power of the Holy Spirit to? I mean, they can't get their eyes off themselves. This is the time when the leadership consultants come in and say, you need a new court group if this, if this group's going to go anywhere. Because this group doesn't cut it. These 11 just aren't doing it. You've got to find 11 new guys. But that's not what Jesus says. He had chosen them. Remember, he called them by name. They had seen him for the last three years. They had followed him, lived with him, and he is going to die for them as well as for us. He had chosen them knowing all their weaknesses. They were his. He loves them. Look at verse 25. He says, in order to really correct your understanding, you have to think in a different way than you've always thought about leadership. Because he gives the example of how the world understands leadership. And and understand, this is the way that they have always seen it, because there's no difference. I mean, there's no democracy in the world at this time. They have always understood leadership in a despotic form authoritative form, autocratic. The world operates on autocratic power by dominance, by dictatorship, authoritarianism, despotism. That's what they understood. Verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. The world has a pecking order. There's a hierarchy to leadership and power and those at the top dominate. This was their world. And he throws this, this word in here at the end, benefactors. Now, a benefactor is, is more than a, uh, a king. It's a different form than a king. A benefactor had in his mind that all good things come from me. What's the uh, um, all good gifts, all good gifts uh, around? Uh, you know, The benefactor said all good gifts come from me. All the things that you have. Let's say I am the benefactor here. And this is a sermon about forgetting your, about greatness and being humble. Uh, I am the benefactor. Everything good you have comes from me. I give it to you, and if I give it to you, what can I do? I can take it away. I can stop giving it to you. That's the power, the despotic power of a benefactor. In fact, Ptolemy I and Ptolemy II and Nero and Caesar Augustus 
all included that title in who they were. They were the benefactor of all they ruled over. So in the world you have dictators and kings and rulers and Caesars and pharaohs and all the rest and they dominate by power and by force. They call themselves the influencers, the energizers, the changers of the world, the benefactors. They believe that all good comes from them. That's their experience. But verse 26, but not so with you, not so with you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I understand in their world, that was just foolishness. Now, it might be foolishness in our world as well, but in their world in particular, they knew nothing of this. This was completely foreign to them. In the kingdom, leaders don't dominate by force or fear. They don't see themselves as the source of all good and influence. They're not supposed to. Now, there are those instances where they might, where they might become corrupt, where they might become so enamored with themselves that they think that they are, um, what, all that and a bag of chips. Okay. Now, here's what a leader in the church who is patterned off of the world style may look like. Any resemblance to your present pastor is purely coincidence. Okay? Power produces pugnacity. Some pastors think of their position as one of power. They're in control. They're the head honcho. When they get a whiff of that power, they want more. This is from a study that has been done. The desire for power begins to creep into their meeting domination techniques. They call every shot. Uh, they have a combative spirit. The Bible's model of shepherd leadership and servanthood has given away to a self-consumed pursuit of more power. This produces a pugnacious pastor. He may cover up his feisty attitude by pretending to be zealous for the Lord, but in actuality he's just a bully. Well, he says, shepherds have to break the sheep's legs now and then. Okay, how about this one? Control breeds contempt. A lust for control can quickly careen into contemptuous attitudes towards other people. The person in charge sees himself as the one above everyone else. Therefore, he regards everyone else as beneath him, the lower-level Christians. Struggling along in their sin-saturated lives have no idea of the height of responsibility in the lofty reaches of the pastoral reign. Pastors become contemptuous of others. This is especially common, and the study found that this is especially common in pastors who have never had a secular job, who have always been the boss, or who served as an associate or on the staff with someone who led in this way. They learned it, they, they saw it successful, they lived it out themselves. And the third section in this is the self-admiration which leads to selfish sins. Perhaps one of the most damaging traits of a bad pastor is his pride. He becomes self-absorbed since he has the control, the title, the position. He does the talking every Sunday. He begins to view himself with a sense of smug satisfaction. Pride develops into a sense of entitlement. And before long, the pastor may have engaged in immorality. He may be living a lie wrapped up in his own lust and pride and self-love. 
The study said, sadly, we see this in younger pastors who are, in a sense, promoted too early because they become full of themselves and they're not emotionally mature. In the preacher world, we say you've got to have enough gray hair to, to lead in a certain way. They become enamored with themselves, assume everybody else is just as enamored with themselves as with them as they are, and before you know it, they have a moral failure. This is what happens when, when worldly leadership sneaks into the pastorate. When I went through seminary, they were training they, they were training pastors on the CEO model, not so much as the shepherd servant model, but as the CEO model. Because everybody coming out of seminary wanted to have that giant church. And to have that giant church, you had to know to run things. And you had to be a big personality and all of this. And, and humility was lost in that. Verse 27, Jesus makes it clear. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. Here is the big honcho who's reclining at the banquet, and up comes the lowly servant. But here, the lowly servant is the Son of God. He is the one who created all that we see. He is the one who holds all power and all authority, and he has just washed their feet. He has just served them. He's making the illustration that if you want to be great, you have to serve. Disciples were all concerned about which one of them would be perceived as the greatest. And Jesus seals the, seals the point of humility by serving them. He lived it out. He didn't just say, hey, you've got to serve. He said, look at me. Look how I live. Look what I do. Worldly leadership is not a model for biblical leadership. Biblical leadership does not lord it over people, even though it sometimes it exercises authority. Remember, Samuel shows up at the house of Jesse, and who comes out? Jesse pulls out his oldest son first, and then the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one. And the Lord says, no, no, no. And finally, he says, don't you have any more sons? And he says, well, there's the who? The youngest out in the field watching the sheep. Go get him. And that youngest son's name was David. David. Youngest person in this culture had the least authority, the least power. And Jesus says, that's who you're supposed to be like. Whoever will be great, let him be your servant. And what happens when you follow that type of leadership style? The payoff is pretty good if we look at this. Let's look at verse 28. And you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And what happens to those who stand by him in, my, in his trials? Just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. We talk about the great banquet. We talk about the image of David um, inviting Mephibosheth to eat at his table each and every day, the crippled son of Jonathan, okay? He, he restores him and brings him in and places him at that table. Here we have the apostles who are so fickle and, and worried about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus says, but you're going to be at my table throughout the kingdom, through all eternity. I will put you there. And what else? And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, wait a minute. 
Would you really put a servant, would you really put a lowly person like that in that position of judgment for all eternity? It's the only way you get there. It's the only way you get there is when you know that to be a leader you have to serve. When your attitude is right, when your heart is right, when you put all things aside and cling only to the things of Christ. He gives them a model to follow. He shows what a humble, loving servant looks like. And then he promises them eternal reward. He says, you're actually going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. One last quote from J.C. Ryle. This Lord of glory left the splendor of heaven and took on human flesh so that he could accomplish our salvation. He rightly could have come in all his splendor demanding our instant allegiance on penalty of death, but instead he took on the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, Philippians chapter 2. Christ's willingness to serve did not in any way rob him of the ultimate authority that will be his. He says, my father has granted me a kingdom. He's coming again and he will conquer all his enemies and reign over all the earth. But in God's sovereign plan, although he deserves and one day will have ultimate supremacy, he first came to earth as a servant. Next time he's coming as judge, conquering king. If Jesus, who deserves supremacy as the almighty creator, willingly served, then should not we who deserve nothing except judgment offer ourselves in faithful service to our Heavenly Father? And the answer would be yes. Let's pray. Humility, Lord, is something... that usually comes with hard lessons. Unless we're paying close attention to Christ, who had all authority, who had all power, who had everything, but yet he he put that all aside to give his life up for us. Heavenly Father, as, as you send us out, make us mindful of this. As you call us to positions of, of leadership, as we seek ways to further the kingdom, help us understand that we must serve, that we must be humble and remember that the good gifts come from you, that the power to achieve comes from you. You call us to go and to do, and we rely upon you in the midst of that. Fix this in our hearts, Lord, that we would humble ourselves and wait for you to exalt us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.